Well, for those of you who weren't here last week, because I know that we have so many faces, um, we'll do a little bit of review, kind of recap some of the stuff we covered last week before we jump right into the scripture. But I hope that um, it was a good experience for you. And like I was telling Stacy a few minutes ago, um, even if you're not able to get everything done, if you know life gets crazy and you only have five minutes to look at the workbook that week, it's okay. You know, that is fine. Those five minutes, I'm sure that God will bless those five minutes. And it's better than zero minutes. And so do what you can, and we'll come back together. And we'll talk about the rest and fill in the blanks all together, and it's fine. And then we'll move on to next week, and you can start fresh with a clean slate. So um, anyway, I I do hope that y'all had a good week as you study the Word. I know that um, I feel like I've read this passage maybe 500 times now. Um, But it's such a good passage, and I love it so much. But... Before we start digging into this, I want to pray for us and um, for this time that we have together, and then we can get into it. So let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your goodness and for your faithfulness that you have shown to us. Thank you for your word that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us through it, God. And I just pray that as we study it tonight, Lord, that you would speak to us, that you would show yourself to us and help us to see you more clearly so that we may be the people that you have created us to be, and so that we may be able to give glory to you day in and day out, every day of our lives. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so for just a bit of review, last week we talked about kind of the background of Ephesians, um, who wrote the letter, who it was written to, and just to give you some context to put it in. So do you remember who wrote the letter? And who did he write it to? To the Ephesians. Um, Or more specifically, probably to the churches in the region of Ephesus, which if you remember, I said that the region was probably about half a million people. Okay, so it was a large area, um, very steeped in magical, mystical kind of thinking, the dark, the occult. And so that has a lot of influence on the things that Paul talks about in the letter is the kind of culture of the area. Um, the, the people that he was writing to, he had spent a lot of time in the church at Ephesus, but there are some points in the letter where it seems like he doesn't know them very well at all. Um, and so that's what leads a lot of scholars to think that it was a <coughs> circular letter that traveled through a bunch of churches. So he may have known some of them very well, but not all of them did he have a, a deep relationship with. But we saw that um, in the introduction in Ephesians 1.1, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And so when he's writing, he is pointing out to them that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I don't walk around calling myself an apostle. I mean, it's a special kind of label, right? And even in the churches today, we don't generally call our leaders and our pastors, we don't call them an apostle. And so it is a term used even in those days of one who was like specially called out by God, usually used by the disciples alone. And so Paul calls himself an apostle specially called in other places. That's what he calls himself. And so the whole point of pointing out that he is an apostle is to say that he is speaking with the authority of God, that he is an apostle by the will of God, like he says. And so when he speaks, it is... God's word that he is speaking to the church. It says, then he goes on to say, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So it's to the believers in Ephesus and to the faithful ones. So the people um, 
who are seeking after the will, who have faith in, in the Lord. That's who he's speaking to. And then verse 2, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace, Paul uses them all the time in, in all of his letters. In, in the greetings, he'll say, Grace and peace to you um, from, from the brothers who are in <laughs> fill in the blank. It's just a common phrase that he uses. But in this letter, you can almost sum up the entire letter with those two words, grace and peace, being his wishes for the Ephesians. He wants them to experience the full grace of God, and he wants them to fully experience the peace that comes through having faith in Christ and the peace that Jesus wrought on the cross. And so that's what he wants them to experience is both the peace and the grace of the Lord. And then he jumps in from there and moves into this long, lengthy section, this long, lengthy prayer. When I say it's lengthy, I mean it is lengthy. In our Bibles, verses 3 through 14 are nicely broken up into, or at least in mine, it's two paragraphs. There's like sentences and commas and all that. In the original language, in the Greek that it was written in, this whole thing, verse 3 through 14, one sentence. One run-on sentence. It is the longest sentence in the entire New Testament. It has 202 words in it. That's a lot. When I was in journalism at Mississippi State, that was my major, um, in our news writing classes, when you write the lead paragraph, do you know what the lead is in a news article? It's like the first one or two sentences. You're supposed to like give all the pertinent information right then, just in case nobody reads the rest of the article. Because I mean, who reads the whole article, right? You read the first two or three paragraphs, and you're like, oh, I'm done with that, moving on. And so you've got to get in the who, what, where, when, why, how, all of that in the first paragraph. And they want you to do it in 25 words or less, Okay. So most, in general, paragraphs in the English language, if you assume they're two to three sentences, you're looking at 75 to 100 words. This is one sentence, 202 words. It is long and it's rambling. And if you studied it, you, you know that he kind of goes back and forth and it's kind of redundant in a lot of ways. He says the same thing over and over again with different words, like trying to drive a point home. But um, the reason that he does it is because he, he wants to make clear these concepts that he's talking about. So he has a purpose in the lengthiness, and he's kind of filling in the blanks. And plus, it's a prayer. So um, whenever we pray, sometimes we tend to ramble, right? Like, I, I know I do. Like, I have an idea in my mind of where I want to go with the prayer sometimes, but filling in the in-betweens is kind of a looping kind of process to get there. And so it's a less formal part of the letter, really, because it's a prayer. And these first verses, 3 through 14, I guess in your homework it was kind of divided into two sections. We talked about 3 through 14, and then we talked about 15 through 23. In that first section, it's a benedictory prayer. So it's a benediction. We talked a little bit about a benediction last time. That's a words of blessing. So it's a prayer of thanksgiving and praise to God in those first verses. And then the second half of the chapter, verses 15 through 23, um, it's not, it's another prayer. It's really kind of like a prayer report. He's telling them what he has been praying for them. And it's a prayer of intercession and supplication. So he is telling them, I have been praying for you. This is what I have been praying for you. And he names out of those things. And then when he finishes chapter one, he moves on into the heart of the letter. And so I'm going to pause for just a second here in your workbooks. Um, if you go, I, I forgot to mention this. If you go to, let me see what page it is. If you're taking notes, page 10 has a nice long notes page for you if you want to take notes. It's blank. Um, if you want to fill in notes there or otherwise you can fill in on your questions, whatever. 
but I forgot to mention that to you earlier. There is a blank page for you to take notes if you want to, if you're looking for a spot. Or you can, um, if you want to take notes on the text itself in the back of your book that starts on page 55, if you want to write on the verses and things like that as we talk, that's fine. So, now that that's covered, let's talk about the prayer. Okay. In verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with, Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So what does it mean that he says, blessed be God? What is he doing? Like, what is it? Do we walk around saying, blessed be your name? I mean, we don't generally say that of people, right? So when he says it to God, he's offering this high praise to the Lord. Like, people are blessed. God blesses us. But God is blessed. There's a difference there that I don't necessarily know how to explain, but you know what I mean, don't you? Okay, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, not just one blessing, not some blessings, but every spiritual blessing. So he's pointing out that God has not held anything back on us, on those of us who believe in Christ, who are following him. God has poured it all out for us, every spiritual blessing. And he makes it a point to say, spiritual blessing. And I wanted to take a minute here to talk about the difference between spiritual and physical, because I think a lot of times when we talk about our blessings, we talk about what's right in front of our faces. Um, If you're listing your gratitudes, I don't know how many of you have read 1,000 Gifts, have you? Anyone? And, well, she talks about having a gratitude journal and writing down the things that you're grateful for, and I do this all the time. Like, whenever I try to write down the things I'm grateful for. I start with, thank you for my family. Thank you for our home. Thank you for the food you've given us to eat. And those things are great. We should be grateful for those things. But I think it's harder sometimes to sit down and list the spiritual blessings that we have through Christ. But it's an important thing to do because here's the thing. The physical things that we are grateful for, they can each and every one of them be stripped away. Right? You can lose your job. You can lose your livelihood. Your savings accounts can be emptied. You can find yourself without knowing where your next meal is going to come from. Um, There can be a horrible car accident. You can lose someone you love. You can get cancer. I mean, all these things that we generally give thanks for, they can all be taken away. And if your basis for Thanksgiving is based on those things, then it will be easy for your faith to be shaken when those things happen. Does that make sense? So rather than placing your, basing your faith and your gratefulness on those things that can change, we need to be joyful and be thankful for the things that cannot change, for the blessings that we have been given that are the same now and in the future, regardless of our time and our circumstances. If, if we lose our jobs... We still have Christ. We still have salvation through him. We still have the peace that comes from him. We still have redemption and the forgiveness of our sins. And these are the things that Paul is telling them to cling to, to hold on to, because these are the kinds of things that never change. These are the kinds of things that never go away. And they are there regardless of what's happening in the world. Because God is good all the time. And his goodness is not dependent on the circumstances that surround us. And so I think sometimes when bad things happen to good people, we have a tendency to say, God, how could you let that happen to them? How could a good God let that happen? Like, how could you let the baby die? 
or how could you let my mom get cancer or how could you let us get in that car like how could God allow that to happen but the point is that we live in a fallen and in a sinful world and all of those tragedies that we experience are an effect of sin working out in the world and the truth is that God has already addressed that problem he has already um, defeated sin and he has already defeated death and the person and the work of Jesus Christ and so while it's true that we still experience some of the pangs of sin that God has already addressed the root problem and he has already done what he could to help us and those are the truths that we cling to that he loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us and that we have an abundance of blessings through him so that even when things may not look the best right now, we know and we hope for a future that is better. And we can depend on it because the God who has promised those things to us is faithful. And he is who he says he is. And he is able to do what he says he will do. So when God makes a promise, it's not like a person making a promise, right? We all have those friends who say, um, yeah, let's do that. Let's get together. Let's have coffee. Uh, let's let's get that on our calendar, okay? Yeah, I really want to catch up with you. Let's do that. And so you write it down, and then like five minutes before you leave your house, what happens? They call. They cancel. They can't meet up with you. Let's reschedule. And so you reschedule. You figure out a time when you can get together, and you're getting ready to go. You're putting your makeup on, and then what happens? You get a text, and can't meet you. Something you know, people disappoint, okay? But God is not like that. God is who he says he is. When he says he's going to show up, he shows up. What he says he's going to do, he does. And when he says that he has blessed us, it means that he has blessed us. And then Paul goes on and then names out all of the different blessings. He, he, he says he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And then he's like, okay, and this is what they are. And he goes on and he lists them. Um, but these blessings that we get, where do they come from? They can't, where are we? It says, who has blessed us in Christ. And so we who have believed in Jesus, we who are the faithful, are in Christ. It's like we have one in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, okay? So these blessings are spiritual, and we know that we have them, but we are also still residents of this world, right? We are also still facing all the stuff that life throws at us. But what he is saying is you are in Christ, and you have a place in the heavenly places. So it's like you have one foot in one realm and the other foot in the other, okay? That God has victory over all of this already, but not yet. It's like the dot, dot, dot. We're living in the dot, dot, dot in between them, um, one, I've heard it described this as the difference between D-Day and V-E-Day. Y'all know the difference between any history people in here? So what happens on D-Day and World War II? You know about D-Day, right? The Allied forces, Allied, they're the good ones, right? So I'm like, wait a minute, maybe I'm not getting the story right. Okay, so the Allied forces, Britain, Britain France, United States, we all gather together, and like we um, sail across the Sea of... Storm the beaches enormous. Yes. What is the body of water? Anyway, we sail from England to France because at this time Germany has occupied France, okay? And so, like, all these boats are going across the water at one time and they all land and, like, all these troops pour out. And of course, they've got, like, you know, the, the beach is rigged, you know? And so they pour out and they storm and they, from that moment on, they're pushing back against the, against the Nazis, okay? 
D-Day was a decisive day for the war. It's the day that we all know about. It's the day that turned the tide of the battle. The battle has been won on, on D-Day. <laughs> From that point on, there was no question of who was going to be the winner. But in the meantime, there were lots of little skirmishes that had to be worked out until VE Day, which I'm not sure how many months later it was, but that's Victory in Europe Day. That's when the, the war was finally over, when the papers were signed, and it was over. But D-Day is when it was decided. It is over. And so that is how it is for us who are believers. The work that Christ did on the cross has granted us victory over sin and victory over death. And that is already true. And yet we are still waiting for that ultimate fulfillment when Christ comes back again. We're in the in-between. And so as Paul talks, he talks a lot about the spiritual blessings and the spiritual battles that are going on because it's a very real thing that we face it are the spiritual forces that are against us. And then he moves on and he says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Now, a lot of times when people talk about God's choosing, His election is one of the churchy words to use for it, or predestination, it makes people nervous, kind of not really sure how to feel about it. Um, and there have been all sorts of people much smarter than me who have debated it for lots of years and come out on different sides. But what I'll say now is this. The Bible is very clear that God has always been about the business of choosing a people to be his so that they may bring him glory. He did it in the Old Testament with Israel. And then through Jesus Christ, he brings us into that family. And so the point is for his people, he chooses that people for himself, but they also have a task of bringing glory to him. Now, in order for Jesus to come, in order for him to be born on earth, God had to choose like a country, a nation, a nationality, a family for him to come through. It had to happen that way in order for Christ to actually be born. He had to have a lineage. He had to have a family tree of sorts. And so the Old Testament is, is that story of the people of Israel who Jesus was born out of. It tells us in Genesis, we see the first person, quote unquote, that, Jesus, that, that God chose was Abram. And he is known as the patriarch of the people of Israel. The patriarch is the head of the family because he was the first. He was the first that God chose. And then from him flow out all the descendants. And so... In the Old Testament, it's all about Israel being God's chosen people. But what Paul goes on to tell us in the Ephesians and in the New Testament is that we are now part of that chosen people, that we have been brought into that. And so when he moves on into verse 5 and says he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, he's saying you are now part of this family. You have been adopted into it. And if we are the sons and daughters, if we are adopted as sons, does it say as sons in this? It doesn't in mine. In some translations, it says you have been adopted as sons. Do any of y'all have that? Okay. So we are the children of God. Like if God adopts us, we are his children. Who is God's other child? Jesus. And so we are siblings of a sort with Jesus although definitely he is obviously the firstborn he's obviously way better at everything than we will ever be but it goes on later on in this passage and we'll get to to talk about the inheritance that we have and who gets an inheritance children I mean does like I mean sometimes it's the random person who serves you coffee but 
most of the time it's the people who are part of the family and not just like any part of the family but close members of the family right and so to talk about being a child of God then um, it means that we are then supposed to reflect the family values um, how many times have you ever been out with your children and you're like, you're making me look bad? <laughs> Stop acting like that. You are not supposed to do that. And so as children of God, then there are expectations laid upon us because we are now part of his family. And as part of God's family, then we have to act accordingly. We have to live accordingly because we do not want to bring the family name down. You don't want to make it look bad. I mean, I don't want to be the one who gets in trouble for that and called out for it later on. Do you? No, not so much. And so we have been adopted. And how does that happen? Through Jesus Christ. Okay. So we are um, co-heirs with Jesus. We are siblings of a sort with Jesus. But the only way that this is possible is through him. That is the only way that it ever happens. And then he goes on to say um, that, the perp- that this was according to the purpose of God's will. And, and a lot of these words that you see in here, purpose and that, the original language has kind of a flair of it was God's good pleasure. Like it was his good pleasure to have this plan. It was something that made him happy. It was something that pleased him. It was his pleasing will. It was what he wanted to do. And because God wanted to do it, he purposed it and he planned it and he made it happen that way to bring us into the family. Um, now, one important thing to note in verse 4, it says that this choosing, this adoption, this planning, it happened when? Verse 4. Someone read. Before the foundation of the world. Okay. So how many of you ever thought, maybe as you, when you were a kid growing up, that Adam and Eve really screwed everything up, and because they did, that God had to have a plan B? Like if Adam and Eve hadn't eaten that, that apple, then the rest of us would have been fine, but they messed everything up, and so God had to make something else work out. Yeah? That's not the way it worked. It says here that before the foundation of the world, God already had this plan in place for Jesus Christ to come, for him to die, for him to sacrifice himself for our sins and for us to be redeemed and brought into the family. That means that God knew what was going to happen and he had a plan in place to take care of it from the beginning of time. In John chapter 1, 1, it says that in the beginning was the word, which when John says the word, it's a capital W, he's talking about Jesus and there's a lot of reasons for that, but we're not going to get into all that right now. Just know that when he says word, he's talking about Jesus. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Okay? So he's saying Jesus was there in the beginning. He was the one who was there at creation. All things were made through Jesus. So he was there in the beginning, and he's there now, and he's there in the heavenlies in the future. You know, he has been there all the time. And this brings up an important part about God, I think, because when we talk about the Trinity, do you know what I mean when I say the Trinity? God is God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit. He is all three for all time, for all eternity, and all three are equally God. Like there's not, there's not one a part of the Trinity that is more divine than the other. They are all equally God. And so Jesus is every bit of... 
every bit of God as God the Father is. And the Holy Spirit is just as much God as Jesus and God the Father is. And so they are all three there together, and they're working together. They have kind of different functions. It's kind of, I've heard it illustrated kind of like water. You know, water can be liquid or gas or it can be ice, but they're all three water. You know, they're different, but they're all three water, okay? And so it's the same thing here, and we'll see in this prayer. He's already talked about God the Father. He's already talked about Jesus Christ the Son, and later on he'll talk about the Spirit. But but Jesus was there in the beginning, and this plan that God has had, it has been a plan for the ages. It is one that he had in the very beginning of time. He was not messed up by Adam and Eve. He knew that this was going to happen, and he planned it this way, and this is the way that he wanted it to happen, and because that's what he wanted to happen, it has happened because he is powerful enough to make it happen. And so he, Paul just kind of loops in and layers on on top of himself. This is what God wanted, so he made it happen, and because he wanted it, it happened, and he wanted it, and you know, he just goes back and forth and back and forth saying that. Okay, and so it says in verse 5, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. What is grace? That's a churchy word we use a lot. I'm like really hot. Are y'all hot? Okay, what? What is grace? I learned as a child God's riches at I learned that in my youth group, too. I, like, have it written in my youth Bible, you know, the acrostic. God's riches of Christ. Does anybody else have a definition for grace? I actually looked at it last week. Good. What would you get, Gina? Free and That is exactly right. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. Okay, so what is something that's unmerited? Is it something that you deserve? No. Like, if it was merited, like, if you deserved it, it wouldn't be grace. It would be something that you... Deserved, something that you earned. Grace is something that you don't deserve, something that you did not earn. It is given freely, um, and it is given by God to us. Now, we'll talk more about grace in, um, next week, actually, because that's the major theme of next week. But for now, just know that when Paul talks about grace, he's talking about that undeserved, unmerited favor. It's getting rewards when what you deserve is punishment. Like, you should be getting a spanking for what you just did but because i love you i'm not going to give you a hug instead you know that's what we would tell our children uh, what i would tell mine anyway except we usually err on the punishment side more so much than the grace maybe i should give my kids more grace um so that's what grace is okay and he says that we have been given this grace we have been blessed with it it's one of the blessings that he names for us in the beloved and who is the beloved jesus yes um, think about, can you think back to Jesus' baptism when John baptized him in the Jordan River? And like the dove comes down. Um, it's one of the places it is, is in Matthew 3. It's in all of it. It's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There's an account of it in all of them. But um, what, what comes the voice from heaven? What does it say? This is my son. Yes, this is my beloved son. That's the important word that I left out that time. Sorry. Okay, so Jesus is the beloved, okay? And the beloved is the one who has given us this grace, who has given us these blessings. He is the one through which these blessings flow. He is the gate from which they pour out, okay? And then it says in verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood. Redemption is another churchy word. What is redemption? Anyone know? Forgiveness as part of it, yes. 
it's paid for. There's definitely like a commercial aspect to redemption. Um, when you, whenever you get those tickets, uh, like people use for raffles and things like this, do you have you ever noticed it says like redeem this on it? Like you can turn the ticket in if they call your number. You turn the <laughs> ticket in and they give you the prize. You're redeeming the ticket. Um, because when something is redeemed, something has been traded in for it, okay? And so this word is used a lot in the, in the Bible that Paul would have used for the Old Testament scriptures that he would have been like studied. Um, this is the word that is used when it's talking about the people of Israel leaving Egypt, that God redeemed them from Egypt. He redeemed them out of slavery, and so if there's the concept of deliverance, of freedom from um, bondage. And so for us, when it says we have redemption, it means that we have been redeemed from the slavery and the bondage of sin. We are free. There is the aspect of freedom to go with redemption. So it is forgiveness and it is bought, it is paid for. And what does it say that it has been paid for with here? Through his blood. And the reason that the blood had to be shed, it tells us in Hebrews, is that in order for the forgiveness of sins to happen, blood has to be shed. And that, did I write it down? Hebrews 9.22. That was a paraphrase. But that's the gist of it. Hebrews talks a lot about sacrifices and, and that. And it says, indeed, Hebrews 9.22, under the law, Almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And I think we have this kind of idea in mind already, like whenever somebody does something bad, we want them to pay for it, right? I mean, we want that justice to be served because we already know that when, when someone breaks the law or when something that someone does something horrible, that, that there is like an uneven balance and it has to be balanced out. Well, in our case, the, the, our sin is balanced out with the blood of Christ. He, he does what is necessary to pay that price and earn us our forgiveness. And so when Paul moves on to the next phrase in verse 6, the forgiveness of our trespasses, it's like the other side of the coin. Like we have redemption and forgiveness. It's two sides of the same coin, okay? They go together. We are freedom and we have forgiveness um, from our trespasses, and that word there has to do with, like, if someone is trespassing, what are they doing? They're going somewhere they don't belong. And if they're bittered off the path they are supposed to be on. And that's exactly what we do when we sin, is that we venture away from God's perfect will from us. We venture away from what God has decreed we should do. And we have stepped off the path. And it says here that, one of the great blessings that God has given us, the great spiritual blessings that he has given us is forgiveness for those times when we have stepped off the path, for forgiveness for those things that we have done that have displeased him. And so that's one of the great, great forgiveness, the great blessings that we have. And these things are all accomplished by God's grace. It is God's grace that does things for this for us. It is, it is not something that we do for ourselves. It is His grace. And the only reason it happens is because He wanted it to. He wanted to show us grace. And He loved us so much that He wanted to bring us back into the fold. He wanted to draw us closer to Himself. 
and to let us be a part of his people. And so we see as we move on in verse 8 that this grace, it says, forgiveness of our trespasses uh, in verse 7, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Okay, this grace of God, it's not any kind of ordinary grace. It is not um, something simple. It's not something small. We've already seen that it's glorious. He said earlier that um, in verse 6 that his grace was glorious. Okay, but here we see that it is rich and it is abundant. And the picture that the words paint is that it's like a fountain overflowing, like running over its edges and spilling out. And it's never going to run out. It is limitless. It carries the idea of an overabundance. Like there is too much of it. There is more than enough of it to cover over anything and everything you could have done. It's never going to run out because there's plenty of it. Okay? And there's going to be enough because there's plenty of it. But also, it is, it is, it is limitless in its measure and its abundance. Okay? But it's also limitless in its ability okay so it is limitless in the sense that there's plenty of it but also in the sense of what it can do like there's nothing that is too bad for it to cover over it is enough it is abundant and it is rich and this is what God pours out on us when he gives us grace he's saying I've got this I have covered you it's like he's like the coach at the end of the football game where they're like dumping the Gatorade, like, and he's soaking wet. You know, God has poured his grace on us. He has lavished us with it. And when I think about this, about how much grace he has to cover over each and every single one of us, did any of you, um, when I was a kid, I liked to watch DuckTales. Did anybody else watch DuckTales? Okay. Do y'all remember Uncle Scrooge? What did he have like this humongous money bin or what was it? vault money vault? That's what he called it. Do what did he do in his money vault? He would swim in it like he had so much money. It was like piles and piles of gold. And like he had this little diving board. He'd like go into his vault and he'd like dive in and he'd swim. And there's like coins flying everywhere. And I know it's a silly image, but that's the image that I get when I think of God and the riches that he shows us is that there is plenty of it. He can swim. We can swim in it. And it's totally fine. There's, it's, we're not going to like splash water out of the pool and, ooh, there's not enough. No, there is, there is more than enough. But the difference between God and Uncle Scrooge is that God is no Scrooge, okay? He doesn't have it all locked up in the vault to like keep for himself and enjoy for himself. And like, he's not stingy in the way he gives it. He doesn't grudgingly give us his grace like, mm, I guess I'll give it to her this time. Uh, I guess, maybe. I'll, I'll give her some grace this time. But next time, no grace. That's, that's not how God is. That is not the God we serve. He is gracious and his, he is kind and he is loving and his grace is abundant. And the way that he gives it to us is not like a miser handing out one penny at a time, but that he pours it over us. And I don't know about you, but I need that. Because even though on the outside we all look pretty good, you know, we've got our lives together we can <laughs> pretend pretty good. I know who I am. You know, I know my faults. I know on the inside exactly all the ways that I have wronged God. And so when we are being honest with ourselves, we know how much we need that grace. And it is a great gift of God to give that much to us. And why does he do it? 
It says in verse 8, it goes on to say that he does it in all wisdom and in all insight because he knew we would need it. He was wise enough to know that we were going to need his help to get ourselves out of the mess we get ourselves into. And he did not want to leave us there. And so he was wise and insightful and he set in motion the plan to fix it all and and that's what he goes on to say in verse 9 he says he makes known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him things in heaven and things on earth so in Christ we're kind of brought back again to Christ that this plan that God has unfolded through the ages, his good plan for us that has given us grace and mercy and redemption and forgiveness. All of that is in Christ. Um, the word that in my translation is unite. I'm not sure what it is in yours. In verse 10, that the plan was to unite all things in Christ. Does, does anybody say sum up? Put into effect. Brought together and summed up. Okay, so the word is like, it's a Greek, since the New Testament was written in Greek. And in Greece, apparently, like when you had a, a column of numbers that you were adding up, like we work from the top and go down and then draw a line and put the number at the bottom. But they put the, the sum at the top. And so this word is that is used is the word that is used to describe that process of adding the column and putting the sum at the top. And so when it says that Christ is the sum of all things, he is like on top. He is the compilation of all things. The word is also used for um, the conclusion of an argument. So like rhetoric and oral arguments were kind of a big deal back then. You think about um, those famous Greek orators and all that. So that term was also used to talk about the end of the argument when you kind of reiterate all that you have said before, you're summing everything up and making your final point, okay? And the point here is that all things we've already seen were made <laughs> through Christ. All things are summed up in Him. And God's plan to redeem us and to redeem all things, not just some things, but all things, find their true place in Him, and so it's kind of like a return to the original creation, back to the way it was supposed to be before when all things were made through him, like it told us in John 1. And so we see here that Christ's work on the cross has brought us back to that point where all things are summed up in him. I think we have a tendency to sometimes separate our two lives, like this is my home life and this is my work life and this is my church life. You know, we separate all the things. Well, what Paul is saying here is that Christ is a part of all of those things. And if you are in Christ, then it should affect all the things in your life from your relationships with your friends to the way you do your work to the way you talk to your neighbor. All of those things have an effect, um, should be affected by the relationship you have with Christ. And he goes on to say, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Okay, so we're back on God's purpose and the inheritance. 
Um, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Again, we were created for the purpose of bringing glory to God. The whole reason we have brought into the fold is to bring glory to God's name. There is a so that attached to our salvation. You have been saved so that you may make much of my name. Okay? And so he goes on to say in verse 13, In him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And what he's saying here, it's, it's the effect of a down payment. Okay? So God has given the Holy Spirit to us as a down payment for the inheritance that we will receive someday. Okay? And what is the thing about a down payment? Like, what does a down payment tell you in, in the home buying world? You, you're you're going to pay off the loan, right? Like, I've given you X amount of dollars. This is 20% of the total amount. <coughs> I'm good for the rest of it. I, I, you know, you're promising to pay for the rest of it. And so when God gives us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of what is to come, He's saying, I'm giving you this now, the Holy Spirit to dwell within you so that someday you may know that when I tell you that you will dwell with me, I mean what I'm saying. And so for now, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, and one day we will dwell with God and obtain all the other benefits in its fullness that he has described. And so now you just want to take a deep breath and say, whew, that was one really long sentence, right? Like one really long sentence, but what a prayer, right? I think sometimes when I pray, I kind of just go through the motions, and I can take some lessons from Paul. Um, and, and that is one thing that has been just pressed on me from studying this, is that I don't thank God often enough for those spiritual blessings that he has given me. And I don't stop to think about how glorious his grace is often enough, and I should. Um, because God is good, and he is deserving of all of our glory and all of our praise. And then in verse 15, Paul makes a shift from giving praise and blessing and honor and glory to God to telling the Ephesians how he has been praying for them. He says, for this reason, and in your homework, I told you that anytime you see something like that, a for this reason, a therefore, comma, at the beginning of a sentence, you need to look back and find out what he's talking about. And so, in this case, the for this reason is everything that came before it. All of those things that we just listed. Because God is good and gracious and kind and merciful. And because we have an inheritance and because we're looking forward to this. God, Paul has not stopped giving thanks. And he has not stopped praying for the Ephesians. Um, because he's been remembering them in their prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Okay? If you remember in verse 8, if you can glance back up there, we have already seen that God has all the wisdom and all the insight necessary, okay? And so he's praying here for God to then give the Ephesians the same wisdom and insight, to give them the wisdom and insight specifically of revelation in the knowledge of God. Okay? So, um, my, my cheeks are flushed. I'm so hot. Oh, I'm hot. I don't know. I turned it down, but I'm hot. Maybe I'm just worked up. Okay. So, 
Um, when he says the knowledge of God, I want you to think about uh, maybe a celebrity that you see on the cover of a tabloid or who's on the news all the time. Let's name one. Who's on the news right now? Kim Kardashian, yes. <laughs> Let's name all the things we know about Kim Kardashian. We know also she's married to Kanye. She has a baby named North. And is she, does she have another baby? Yes. Saint. Okay. Got two babies. Crazy family. I mean, look, we know all sorts of things that we don't really want to know about Kim Kardashian. But do we know her? Knowing about someone is not... <laughs> it's okay. Knowing about someone is not the same thing as knowing them, right? And so when it comes to God, the same thing is true. It is not enough for us to know about God. It is not enough for you to go to church and to hear the lesson and say, hmm, that was interesting, and then move on, okay? To really know someone, what do you have to do? You have to spend time with them. You have to interact with them. And that's when you get to see who somebody really is. Because when we're all on our good behavior and our Sunday clothes and we come to Sunday school, we all look pretty good, right? But it's like when, when okay, when I was in college, I had a roommate that I thought was going to be perfect for me. We were like the best friends ever. And then we moved in together. <laughs> and we were not best friends anymore. You know, because when you live with someone, you know them better than you ever wanted to know them, right? Marriage. It's like, right, okay? So you get the difference I'm talking about here. You have to spend time with someone. You have to, like, rub up against them in the daily grind of life to really know who someone is. And it's the same way with God until we spend time with Him until we spend time in prayer and we spend time in his word and and really seeking to know his face, then we will not know him in the way that he wants to be known by us. Okay? And so when Paul says he is praying that God would give them a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him and having the eyes of their hearts enlightened, he wants them to know God intellectually wisdom and insight but he also wants them to know them like know to have their hearts enlightened with the light of christ deep down in their soul that word heart is like the center of your being it's not just oh touchy-feely like place where your emotions come from it's like who you are deep down inside and so he's saying deep down inside i want you to be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward those of us who believe? And then he goes on to tell you exactly how powerful God is. Okay? And the way that he does that, he talks about um, the resurrection. Like, how powerful do you have to be to raise someone from the dead? What kind of power do you have to have to be able to, like, breathe life back into a dead body and make it get up and walk and talk and, like, nothing ever happened? You know, um, even now, like a doctor doc, team of doctors can resuscitate someone and revive someone after their heart has stopped, if they get there in time. But, like, there's always some kind of lingering effects, right? Because of something about oxygen to the brain, and if the brain hasn't had enough oxygen for, I don't know, a minute, like even a minute without the oxygen to the brain, they're, like, never the same, Right? 
they might be alive, but they're not the person that they were before because that has like lingering effects on him. That is not the kind of raising of the dead that God did. Okay. When God raised the dead, it was that Jesus was just exactly like he was before, except for all those wounds that he got on the cross, they were healed. It was better than he was before. Right. Okay. So that kind of power, that is the power that is at work within us. And we'll see more about that next week. He talks about in our sins and our transgressions, he describes us as being dead, but God made us alive through Christ. And so we'll talk more about that then. But just know that that power that God has, it is just as immeasurable and just as great as his grace is. It is limitless in its scope and in its ability. Okay. Because we see not just in when we talk about Jesus, but also um, throughout, think about all the stories in the Old Testament about the women who were barren, but God brought life to their womb. Okay, so he creates life in dead places. That is the kind of power that God has. And that is the kind of power that he works in our hearts because our hearts are dead apart from him, but he brings them to life. He is powerful, and that power is immeasurable. It is great, and it is mighty. That is the kind of power that he has for us. So he demonstrates it by raising Christ from the dead. He demonstrates it by seating him at his right hand in the heavenly places. He, not only did he raise Christ from the dead, but then like Christ ascends to heaven and sits down beside God at his right hand. And that position has um, the person who sat at the right hand of, of the sovereign had the authority to act with all of their power. It was, you know, when you say, You're, he's my right hand man, what do you mean? They're the one that you turn to. That they're, they're it. Right. And it's the same way when we say that Jesus sits down at the right hand of God. He has all the authority, all everything that God has um, because of that. And it says he sees him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. Okay, so not only did God have a plan before the beginning of time that has been working out exactly as it was supposed to be, now, in their time, as Christ was born and lived and died and resurrected, okay, so he had a plan before time, it was brought out in the present time, but it is also going to continue to be worked out in the ages to come, okay, so it's a plan for the past, present, and the future, not only in this age, but in the one to come, and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of all who fills all and all. Like, that's a lot of filling. The fullness of him who fills all and all. I think um, one of the translations I read said he fills all things in every way. The, yes, the, he fills all things in every way. Okay. <laughs> so God is the fullness of all things. And in him we can have fullness as well. Um, whew, what a God we serve, right? That's a lot. That is a lot for one week. That's a lot for one sentence, one chapter. Um, but that is Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, that they would come to know this God, not just any God, but the one who has given them grace and mercy, the one who has shown them such love and compassion, the one who is so powerful that he has given them all of these blessings and he is able to do all that we can ever ask or imagine. That is the God that he prays to on their behalf. And so his prayer for them, that they would come to know him more deeply, and that is my prayer for us, too, that as we study this word, that we will get a clearer vision of who God is 
and that we would walk away from that vision forever changed. Because I think that whenever you catch a glimpse of God and all of His fullness and all of His glory, it changes you. You're never the same. You think about in the Old Testament when Moses met with God when they were wandering in the desert, like he'd go into the tabernacle and God would come down and talk to him because Moses was special like that. So God would talk to him and Moses would come out of the tent and what happened? Do you remember? His face, like he glowed, literally he glowed with the glory of God. He had to cover up his face because people could not, they couldn't look at him. He was too bright. Too bright. <laughs> Cover your eyes. And so my prayer for us is that we would glow with the knowledge of God, that as we spend time in his presence, that it would rub off, off on us and that we would be the kind of people that people have to, like, cover their eyes um, because the light of Christ is so bright within us. That was Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, and that's my prayer for us. So I will pray for us. And then we can spend a few minutes in group time. It's already 10 after 7, but we can still talk for a few minutes in small groups and share prayer requests and things like that. And then um, close out for the night. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your goodness and for your mercy, for the love and the grace that covers over every single one of our sins, God. Thank you for lavishing your riches upon us. Lord, I just pray that you would um, speak to our hearts, that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts, God, that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and of insight as we study your word, Lord, that you would speak to us, Lord, and that you would make your presence known among us, God, that you would mold us into the people, the kind of people who bring glory to your name, Lord, and that people would see your light shining through us, God, so that we may be able to bring glory to you. And that we know that that's the reason that you have created us, God. I pray that you will help us to be that people. And it's in your name that we pray these things. Amen.